This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How about you? I'm doing great, and I'm really excited about this show. We've had uh, Attorney Lewis Watson on before, and it's wonderful to have him back on the show to talk about employment law. Um, Lewis, could you please remind us a little bit about your background and area of practice? Sure. I uh, graduated from the University of Mississippi Law School in 1991, and I have been practicing labor and employment law here in Jackson, Mississippi ever since that time. I had a defense practice first 10 years of, of my career, and now I'm basically a two-person outfit, and we mostly represent individuals uh, who have issues uh, dealing with employment. So we've seen all types of things, and boy, has it been busy lately. I bet. And one of the things you know I, I'm thinking about, and, and we've read about in the paper recently, is a lot of people because they're working distantly uh, or on their computers a lot and often posting things on social media, there's been a lot happening. And uh, can I, can I be terminated for my social media post as an employee? Uh, yes, absolutely. You can. Um, because number one, it's a voluntary act that you undertake yourself and you post it in a public domain. So there's no uh, right of privacy uh, furthermore, if you work for a private employer, you have no constitutional rights, such as a right to privacy or a property interest in your job. And so an employer in the private sector can terminate you even if they just don't like your post. So, you know, my advice is stay away from it. Uh, don't put anything out there that may come back to haunt you. Yeah, we've seen uh, several instances recently where people have been fired uh, for that. You know, I, I, in the educational sector, we've had students who's uh, applied to universities were accepted, but because of their posts, their uh, acceptance was revoked. So, you know, I, I think it is a, a word of caution for all of us. And you mentioned that, that if it's private, uh, it's not it's not protected by the First Amendment. Why would that be? Well, because your constitutional rights do not extend beyond the government. In other words, a private employer has no obligation to recognize your constitutional rights. So a private employer is only governed by the federal and state labor and employment laws that we have. And in Mississippi, we're an employment at will state. And what that means is that there is no contractual relationship. Therefore, the employer can terminate the relationship at any time for any reason. Likewise, the employee can terminate the employment relationship at any time for any reason. So because you're in the private sector, constitutional rights do not apply. So there is no First Amendment 
protection of, of free speech. Thank you for clarifying that. I think that's something that people don't really understand, you know, when they talk about, well, it's my First Amendment right, but your employer is not, the, is not Congress and is not the state in most cases. But what about, um, you know, we, we, other behaviors? Can my employer have something in their, in their uh, work manual, my, my, uh, my uh, employee manual that says that uh, we don't allow anyone to work for this company who smokes? Can they, can they regulate my activities outside of work? <clears throat> Well, there is a, a obscure Mississippi statute that uh, does give smokers some rights off-premises. But other than that, the employer can absolutely regulate uh, when and if they're going to allow you to smoke. Um, the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, governs work breaks, for example, a lunch break, things like that, winter breaks, compensable. But the Fair Labor Standards Act doesn't require that an employer give any breaks. So there is no right legally to, say, a lunch break or a 15-minute break or whatever. There are just rules out there of when an employee must be compensated for those breaks. We are having such an awesome discussion today. We are so lucky to have attorney Lewis Watson from Watson and Norris Law Firm. We're speaking about employment law today. All the things that covers uh, from getting hired to keeping your job to getting fired. We're talking about discrimination or social media posts. Whatever you would like to ask our attorneys, please give us a call today. Well, this is, you're right. This is such a, an important uh, conversation and a, and a great conversation. I hope people have questions because COVID-19 has definitely, I would imagine, Lewis, in, in your practice, affected what happens in employment law. You know, are there, for example, are there greater protections uh, for employees under the CARES Act? Uh, yes, there are. And by the way, our phones have been ringing off the hook with uh, people that have been affected by the coronavirus, people that have issues related to their employment. And the things that I've been hearing uh, from the people that I've talked to are really unbelievable. I've had one instance where an employee tested positive for COVID-19, worked at a nursing home facility, and they wanted her to come back to work even though she had tested positive. And her doctor had advised her to self-quarantine. And under the new CARES Act, uh, which, by the way, amended the Family Medical Leave Act, and, and what it did, uh, pre-amendment, the Family Medical Leave Act only applied to employers that had 50 or more employees within a 75-mile radius. So smaller facilities were not covered. Uh, you had to have 50 or more employees within a 75-mile radius. So what the amendment did is it changed that, that qualifying definition of an employer, and it changed it to any employer that has 500 or fewer employees. So it could be one employee, it could be two employees, it could be five. So all of a sudden, <clears throat> on April 2nd of this year, all of those smaller employers became covered 
by the new revised FMLA. And pre-amendment, the FMLA, all that it did was guarantee an employee 12 weeks of unpaid leave. Now that employee had to work there for a year and had to have worked 1,250 hours during that year. Well, after the amendments, the employee only had to be employed for a month, and there were no additional requirements as to how many hours they would have had to have worked. So now any person that worked for an employer for a month and the employer has 500 or fewer employees, then they would now be covered by the new amendment to the FMLA. And, and what it provides, it provides for up to two weeks of paid sick leave. So the amendments shifted it from unpaid to paid for at least two weeks. But it also uh, guaranteed an additional 10 weeks of unpaid leave uh, for persons that were subject to a federal, state, or local quarantine or people that have been advised by their health care provider uh, to self-quarantine. Um, it also covered people experiencing COVID-19 symptoms seeking a medical diagnosis. It covered uh, individuals uh, subject to the self-quarantine and that were caring for their child. So in other words, as you know, a lot of schools were closed. A lot of daycare facilities were closed. And if parents had to stay home to take care of that child, they are covered by the new amendments to the FMLA. So they're entitled to two weeks of paid sick leave and then 10 weeks of unpaid leave. And the only exception <clears throat> is that if an employer can petition the Department of Labor for an exemption showing that it would be an undue hardship on their business. But I've not seen uh, any examples of any business qualifying for that undue hardship, although I'm sure they're out there. Lewis, I, I'm finding this very interesting. Um, I'm very naive about uh, wanting everything to be sunshine and roses. When employers are reminded that if an individual has COVID and the doctor tells them to quarantine, that that's what they should do. Do the employers say, oops, my bad, you know, please do that? Does it need to be taken to further levels? And and remind us again what further steps an employee might need to take if their employer doesn't abide by some of the CARES Act provisions? Well, they can certainly contact the United States Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division. And there's an office here in Jackson. There is an office in Gulfport. Uh, and they have a 1-800 number. Actually, it's one eight six six four eight seven nine two four three, Or they can go to dol.gov and look on the website. But unlike Title VII, which 
which covers race discrimination, things like that, it has administrative prerequisites. In other words, if you want to file a claim of race discrimination, you have to go to the EEOC first and file a charge of discrimination and exhaust your administrative remedies. With the DOL and the FMLA, it doesn't work that way. Yes, you can file a complaint, and if the DOL finds sufficient evidence, they can conduct an investigation, or you can simply proceed in court and file a lawsuit yourself. Our office right now, we have filed approximately four or five lawsuits uh, under the new CARES Act or the amendments to the FMLA, and those lawsuits uh, are usually filed in federal court because you're suing under a federal statute, the FMLA. So we are testing these new amendments, and we're testing the protections that Congress intended to extend to workers uh, under these conditions. Now, you might ask, well, you know, why would you file a lawsuit? Uh, what's the potential benefit of doing that? Well, under the FMLA, uh, an aggrieved individual can be reinstated. The court can award them reinstatement. Or if the court concludes that that is not feasible, the court can award front pay in lieu of reinstatement. Then, of course, another element of damages under the FMLA is back pay. So from the date that the individual was terminated uh, improperly, they can recover back pay from the day that they were terminated until the day that they go to trial. And in addition to that, while punitive damages are not available under the FMLA, liquidated damages are. And what those are, it's kind of, a, it's, it's a sort of a penalty that, that the court can impose upon an employer for violating the FMLA if it was, if the court finds that it was an intentional violation. And what liquidated damages are is an amount equal to the back pay that was owed. So if an individual, say, for example, was owed $10,000 in back pay, the court can then double it as liquidated damages and award an additional 10000 for a total of twenty. In addition to that, a prevailing party is entitled to attorney's fees and costs under the FMLA. So, you know, a judicial remedy is available, but there's also a remedy going through the United States Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division. And again, they can contact the office here in Jackson or the office in Gulfport. This is why folks need to know uh, your rights. And we're so glad that we've got attorney Lewis Watson on our show today. We're going to continue our discussion of at-will employment with attorney Lewis Watson. What are some situations that employment law covers? I'll tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is In Legal Terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We're talking about employment law today that covers wages and benefits, family and medical leave, workplace safety, hiring, firing, discrimination, whistleblowers, and workplace privacy. Lewis Watson is our guest. We're so glad that he's here from Watson and Norris Law Firm. Uh, I guess maybe this is a really good time that uh, we live in to have computers because I can't even keep track with all that Lewis has to know about concerning employment law. Yeah, Lewis, we're so lucky to have him. I, you know, I, Lewis, you mentioned that Mississippi is an employment at will state, and you know, you, you explained that a little bit. But well, so, if it's employment at will, is there ever any reason that my uh, employer fires me that I can uh, sue them for? Well, up until I believe it was 1988, there were no exceptions to our employment at will doctrine. And at that time, um, the Mississippi Supreme Court acknowledged that there should be exceptions to our employment at will doctrine. And let me back up a minute. Employment at will means that either party can terminate the relationship at any time for any reason, a good reason, a bad reason, no reason at all. So an employer could simply say, I don't like the shirt that you're wearing today. Get out of here. I'm terminating your employment. So previously, unless you had a written contract of employment, you were an employee at will. And so you basically had no rights. So that's why it's important, in my opinion, if you're going to be employed with somebody and you think it's going to be potentially long-term and you want to have some rights in the relationship, then you need to you need to ask for a contract. And the contract doesn't have to be complicated. It can say that the employment relationship will be from year to year, and it will be automatically renewed unless one party decides to uh, give notice to cancel the agreement. And it can also specify under what conditions the relationship can be terminated. For example, it can say that good cause must exist before the employer can terminate the relationship. Or it could simply say that that each party has to give 30 days notice before they terminate the relationship. The, The contract can say whatever you negotiate and whatever your employer will agree to enter into with you. But absent that, if there is no contract, you're an employee at will. 
So in Mississippi, up until 1988, you could be terminated for any reason. All right. Now, what happened when the Supreme Court issued the McCarn decision? Well, what happened was that the Supreme Court acknowledged that we would we would have two public policy exceptions. Okay, uh, the first being that if you refuse to commit an illegal act, and the employer then retaliates against you, then that is a claim of wrongful termination. And it's a claim that's sounded in tort. So you, it's a, an actual tort that you can sue for uh, in court. Now, in the McCarn case, this individual was a uh, pesticide applicator. And the employer was uh, Allied Bruce Terminex. And they wanted him to certify that he had applied the appropriate amount of chemicals on a particular job when he had not. He had run out, and he refused to submit the report uh, to the Mississippi Department of Health or, or whatever agency he was reporting to. And when he refused to certify that he had properly applied the chemicals when he actually had not, it was actually a crime if he had signed that certification. And so the employer terminated him for refusing to commit an illegal act. And in that case, uh, the Mississippi Supreme Court held for the first time that we have exceptions to the employment at will doctrine. So the first exception is you refuse to commit an illegal act. Second exception was that it's a whistleblower type of exception, where if you blow the whistle on the employer for engaging in criminally illegal activity, and then you're retaliated against, that would also be a claim of wrongful termination. Now, the courts, mostly the federal courts, have interpreted that that case law, and they've they've really tried to restrict it. And they've tried to say, well, it's got to be criminally illegal. It can't just be illegal. It's got to be punishable as a crime. But recently, we've had cases that have expanded the exceptions. And so basically now, I think that if an employee can show that they are being terminated and it's against public policy in Mississippi, I think that will suffice to establish a claim of wrongful termination. For example, we just filed a case uh, last week where our client worked for a school district here in Mississippi. I'm gonna not I'm not gonna name which school district. There are only 182 of them out there, so you know you'll have to take a lucky guess. But that individual worked for a school district, was out on FMLA, FMLA leave, was due back on a certain day. Well, she received a notification from the circuit court that her presence was required for jury duty uh, on the day that she was supposed to return. So what did she do? She contacted her employer, informed them that she would be performing uh, jury duty, would be providing that service as mandated by law. There's a, there's a state statute that, that governs that that says that you must show up and be available for jury duty when you receive that summons. And that's what she did. 
She notified her employer, and they were not happy. And so what did they do? They terminated her employment. So we have actually filed a lawsuit in state court bringing a claim of wrongful termination because the school district violated Mississippi's public policy of specifying that individuals are required to show up for jury duty. And they fired her for not being at work and instead of showing up for jury duty. So we will see how uh, that case progresses uh, through the legal system. Um, you might ask, well, what damages are available for a claim of, of, of wrongful termination? Well, so far, the Mississippi Supreme Court has held that individuals are not liable for that tort. In other words, you can only sue the employer, the entity that employed, that actually employed that individual. But you can sue them, and remedies consist of back pay, but more importantly, punitive damages are available. And there was one case in the 90s, uh, Willard versus Paracelsus, in which the Mississippi Supreme Court upheld an award, I believe it was $2 million in punitive damages when the underlying wage claim was about $30,000. So these can be dangerous lawsuits for employers. And before the McCarran case came, there were no exceptions. But now we have these exceptions, and basically if you can show that public policy in Mississippi has been violated, basically a statute uh, has been violated by the employer, then that will be a claim of wrongful termination. So previously where employers had nothing to fear under state law for terminating an employee, now there is something to fear. I am loving hearing all of this. Um, I'm, I'm hoping I won't need to know all of this information, but uh, being aware of it for my friends, for my family, I'm loving soaking up all of this information. When you contact us, you don't. You can say your name is Jay. You can say your name is Liz. We don't actually need your real name if you don't want your employer to find out about it. But we are talking with Lewis Watson. That is his real name. Uh, we're talking about employment law today. And if you're interested in more employment law information, I'll tell you how you can hear more next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. 
we hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. There's many different podcasting platforms. I happen to like Podcast Addict. Uh, that's for Androids. iTunes, art, your Apple phone or tablet already comes with some kind of podcasting platform. But I downloaded the podcast platform to my phone. I touched the plus and it took me to a page to search for different podcasts. I typed in in legal terms because I knew the name of it because <laughs> I host it and I typed it into the search area and it brings up our show. Then I can touch the photo and then I can subscribe so that I can be notified. If I choose, you don't have to be notified when the new episodes are loaded up. This morning, we're talking about employment law with our guest attorney, Lewis Watson. But on March 26th, of 2019. He was our guest on In Legal Terms. So you can hear that podcast on your podcasting platform. You can also hear it on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. There's so much timely information today, all of the the COVID-19 Supreme Court decisions. If you have a question, we would love for you to contact us. And folks, we have three calls waiting. Let's go first to Joe, who has called in from Louisiana. Joe, thank you so much for calling into In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Uh, The question I was asking, can your employee hold back time out of your your eight hours that uh, you worked and you didn't take a lunch break, but you had to you worked you were working for them, but they did, you didn't have time to take the lunch break, and because you were so busy and doing a job for them, and, uh, and they took it out anyway because they said you should have pointed out and took a lunch break anyway, but you couldn't take it based on the work we were doing and helping the, the patient and, and, and taking patient back and forth, and uh, and I didn't have a time to do it. That's legal. Is it legal for employment to do that? But I know it was well, that, break, but we couldn't. I couldn't take it, so I'm hanging up and looking at it on the radio. Thank you, Joe well, from good, Louisiana. That's a very good question, Joe. And uh, the the answer is no. They can't do that. And what prohibits them from doing that? It's the Fair Labor Standards Act. And basically, if they are going to deduct a lunch break. They have to give you at least 30 minutes of uninterrupted time. So in order to deduct for a break, the employer has to give you 30 minutes of uninterrupted time, and you should be free to leave the premises to do whatever it is that you want to do during that 30 minutes. Now, it can be longer than that. It can be an hour. But you've got to have the freedom to do whatever it is that you want to do. Eat your lunch, uh, make a call to in legal terms, or to do whatever it is that you want to do during your break. And so, if the employer is requiring you to work, and they're also deducting thirty minutes, saying that you should have taken a break, that is improper under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And so, the remedy there is to file either a complaint, just like the FMLA that we were talking about earlier with the United States Department of Labor. I know there's an office in New Orleans. I assume there's one probably in Baton Rouge. Uh, You could contact them 
and tell them that you're not being compensated for this break time. Because what's probably going on is if the employer is doing it to you, they're doing it to more people. And the Fair Labor Standards Act has a very interesting provision. It's Section 216B, and it's the opposite of a class action, and it's called a collective action. And the way that it's opposite is that in a class action lawsuit, um, you basically uh, have to opt out. In a collective action, you opt into the lawsuit. So, for example, you could file a lawsuit on behalf of yourself and all other similarly situated individuals. So all those other coworkers of yours that are, are not being given a lunch break but are having their paycheck deducted every day for that lunch break, they you could file a collective action, and those individuals can opt in with you. Now, you know, of course, if you're still working for this employer, uh, that's a very scary thing to do, to file a lawsuit against your current employer. However, if there are a group of people, uh, I think there's safety in numbers. And so if those similarly situated individuals, say five to ten individuals, file a lawsuit uh, under the Fair Labor Standards Act for denial of that lunch break, uh, I think that would be a safer course of action. But it's, it's important to know that under the Fair Labor Standards Act, there is an anti-retaliation provision. And what that provision says is that an employer cannot retaliate against you for exercising your rights or making a complaint about unpaid overtime or unpaid wages under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So even if you don't file a lawsuit and you simply make a complaint that I'm not being compensated for my lunch break, and they then turn around and terminate you or otherwise retaliate against you, that will be a claim under the Fair Labor Standards Act. We've had that case before, and the jury found in our client's favor. Um, it's an open question, or we like to think it's an open question, as to whether other damages are available for a retaliation claim. In other words, whether you can get compensatory and possibly punitive damages for a retaliation claim because normally under the Fair Labor Standards Act you can only get the wages that are owed and you can get liquidated damages and you can get attorney's fees. So that's a very interesting question uh, that, that Joe had and I would encourage him to make a complaint and see if the employer will make it right. And if not, then contact the Department of Labor or contact an attorney and consider uh, filing a suit to recover those wages for the hours that you worked and you were not being paid properly. Thank you so much, Lewis, for that question. Let's move on to Oliver. Oliver, thank you so much for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Well, my comment or question is, if a comment, I mean, a, an employer ceased to exist, if they cease to exist, can they short your last paycheck? Or do you have any recourse as to how you can retrieve that? 
Well, Oliver, that's an interesting question. Um, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, individuals can be liable as well as corporate entities. And so if there's a president of the, of the company that's still out there that owned and operated the company, then you can pursue a claim against that individual just as you can against the entity that employed you. So um, you say ceases to exist. Uh, we don't know, for example, if they followed all the proper procedures to dissolve the corporation legally. Uh, so the corporation may be out there. Uh, the individual is probably still out there. And there's another issue of insurance coverage. Some entities, employers, purchase what's called EPLI coverage, Employment Practices Liability Insurance. And so it could be that even though the employer doesn't exist anymore and say you can't find the individual, you could still sue the entity and perhaps there might be some sort of insurance coverage out there available to to make a claim against. So uh, just because, you know, they say that they cease to exist doesn't necessarily mean that you're out of luck. Thank you, Oliver. We appreciate you for giving us that question. Let's move on to Craig in Biloxi. Craig, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Okay. Uh, in Mississippi, it's an at-will to fire. Is there any discrimination laws that uh, apply before you're hired, like if you're discriminated and not hired for some reason? Yes. Um, we have to look to federal law here in Mississippi because we don't have our own human rights commission like some states do. Uh, so we have to look to federal law here in Mississippi. And the main law is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And it prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, sex, religion, national origin. Now, we also have the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, which prohibits discrimination against individuals that are 40 years of age or older. We also have the Americans with Disabilities Act that prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities. So those are the categories out there. Uh, as as you probably heard, the Mississippi Supreme, I mean, excuse me, the United States Supreme Court recently issued an opinion that held that sexual preference and sexual orientation is protected. You know, before that decision became came down, it was not protected here in Mississippi. So sex has now been defined. It's a it's a broader term than it used to be. It includes sexual preference and sexual orientation but those are the categories generally and if an employer refuses to hire you because you're a member of one of those protected categories then that will be the basis for a claim of age discrimination sex discrimination race discrimination now how do you i'm sorry i was going to ask if that's something you have to prove 
or happy with well, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, there are two ways to prove discrimination. One is direct evidence. I've had a case recently where they said, we are looking for somebody young for this position. We don't want to hire any older people. Okay, that's direct evidence. If an employer or their agent or employee states something to that effect, that is evidence, that is direct evidence of discrimination. Oftentimes, people are not that stupid. They're not going to go out there, even though that may be internally what they're thinking, they are not going to express that verbally. All right, how do you prove that? Well, you, you look at circumstantial evidence. In other words, you look at similarly situated individuals such as yourself that applied for this job. And if you look at who applied for the job and you see that they're only hiring females, for example, and not males, then you can use that circumstantial evidence as the basis for your claim. Well, if you think or you suspect that you have a claim, what do you do? Well, you're required to file a charge of discrimination with the EEOC. I mentioned this before in the show, there are administrative prerequisites for certain laws. Well, under Title VII, under the ADEA, and under the ADA, you're required to exhaust your administrative remedies first. In other words, you have to go to the EEOC and file a charge of race, age, sex discrimination, whatever it is. The EEOC will then take that charge and they will assign it to an investigator and they will investigate your charge. And at the end of their investigation, they'll come to a conclusion. And either they will find in your favor or they'll find that there's not sufficient evidence to find that there's been a violation of the statutes. At that point, they issue a notice of right to sue. And at that point, you then can proceed in court to file a claim. So say you have a claim of sex discrimination. You go through the EEOC process, you're issued a notice of right to sue, and once that's issued, you have 90 days, only 90 days, to file a lawsuit in state or federal court. Now, on the front end, the timeline to file your charge, this is very important, you only have 180 days, which is roughly six months. So if company A doesn't hire you and you find out that you're one of three or four males that were not hired and they hired only females, you have 180 days from the day that they told you that they weren't going to hire you to file a charge with the EEOC. Now, there's an office here in Jackson. Uh, there's an office in Memphis that covers North Mississippi, and the Mobile office of the EEOC uh, covers most of the coastal region here. So if you're in Biloxi, I would suggest that you contact the Mobile office of the EEOC to file a charge if you suspect that you've been discriminated against uh, for any any of those protected categories that I mentioned earlier. Thank you, Craig, so much for calling in today. So, Lewis, you were talking about um, discrimination generally. What what categories can can employers discriminate? Are there some employers that can discriminate? Well, that's a good question. Um, Title VII only applies if you have 15 or more employees. So 
if there's a small employer out there that has, say, under 15, say they have 10 employees, then they're not covered by Title VII. They're not covered by the ADA. Now, the, the ADEA that covers age discrimination applies to 20 or more employees. So if they don't meet that initial threshold, then the employer is not covered by those federal laws. And so if they're not covered, they are free to uh, discriminate. Now, can can we somehow hold them accountable uh, through other means? It all depends. You know, we have the exceptions to the employment at will doctrine. We also have a tort here in Mississippi, Richard, that, that's not really well known, but it's tortious interference with employment. And that's not a claim that you bring against the employer, but it's a claim that you bring against an individual who tortiously interferes with that employment relationship with the employer. Even though we're, it's an at-will employment relationship, it can still be tortiously interfered with. So what we see in a lot of instances where, say, Title VII doesn't apply, other federal statutes don't apply, we see a bad actor out there. And we see that that bad actor has intentionally tried to disrupt that employment relationship between our client and the employer. And so while there may not be any other remedy in, in federal or state law, there is that remedy for tortious interference with employment. And that is a tort that is alive and well here in Mississippi. That's so interesting. I, now, what advice? I mean, we don't have a lot of time left, and, and I, unfortunately this, this our time flew by today, but I mean, if you're talking to employees, you know, that, what advice do they have uh, or do you have for employees that are in a, in a bad situation with their employment and they think they may have a claim? Well, I think the most important thing is that you've got to speak up. And you've, you, you, if you observe something that's going on that's wrong, that's improper, that, that's a problem, You've got to speak up, because if you don't speak up, then you fail to take that initial step of making a complaint. Um, in order to be protected, say, uh, from Missis- under Mississippi's Employment at Will Doctrine for our public policy exceptions or for uh, a claim of retaliation under Title VII or the Fair Labor Standards Act or the Family Medical Leave Act, you've got to engage in protected activity. Making a complaint is considered protected activity. All right? And so once you engage in protected activity, you're then cloaked in the protection against retaliation. Whether or not your complaint is valid or not, the fact that you have taken the step and made a complaint that then triggers the employer's duty to conduct an investigation. Now, their investigation, you know, may conclude that um, there wasn't a violation or there's not a problem. That's fine. But you have engaged in protected activity, and from that point forward, as an employee, 
you are protected against unlawful retaliation. And oftentimes what I see in my practice is while the underlying complaint may not have enough proof to succeed, the fact that an employee engages in protected activity and then they are retaliated against, a retaliation claim, in my mind, is much easier to prove because you don't have to go back and prove that the actual race or sex discrimination existed. All you have to show is that the employee engaged in protected activity. Now, the complaint needs to be specific. It needs Lewis, we, like Professor Gershon said, we could do a whole other hour of this. You provided such great information for our listeners. It was a lot to unpack. So go back and listen to it again on our podcast so you can absorb all this great information. Thank you, Lewis Watson, who was our guest today. Thanks to uh, Jay White and to Java Chapman for helping out. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 